Um, I'll be the first to admit uh, that I got quite used to living without a mask or sanitizing my hands before going into a shop or a restaurant or something like that. Um, and it's been great to fellowship, I'm sure you'll agree, great to gather together and fellowship without worrying about social distancing and planning events without worrying about, okay, who can come, who can't come, how are we going to do this thing? Life on Cayman, to a certain degree, was, was certain and predictable while the rest of the world hasn't been. But the unfolding events of this past week with the increasing community-based COVID infections expose just how uncertain and how unpredictable life can be. And so the question is, how are we as Christians, how are we to respond to these events? How are we to respond to our government's decision to postpone the opening of the borders? Um, according to a poll launched by the Cayman Compass, <coughs> excuse me, of the 6,683 participants that was um, by, of, of Friday morning, 20% uh, said they supported the decision to postpone the opening of the borders, 76% uh, disagreed, and 3% were on the fence. But now, I was reading those stats and I was thinking, well, there's, there's got to be a whole lot of varying emotions and viewpoints under those stats. Some are fearful and anxious about the rise in these local cases and afraid of then what, what would happen if we do open the borders. Then I'm guessing some of those who are fearful would be quite outspoken about their concerns, while others were maybe just wanting to kind of retreat and wait until things clear up. And then according to the stats, a very large portion of people are very disappointed and, and frustrated, possibly even angry at the postponement. And in their anger and frustration, certainly making their viewpoints known. Another area of uncertainty COVID has introduced is whether to get vaccinated or not. How many of us have been part of a conversation or witnessed a conversation that got awkward really quickly or got heated very quickly? Uh, or maybe you felt ostracized or maybe you felt rejected because you have been vaccinated or because you haven't been vaccinated, depending on who you are talking with not to mention a host of other uncertain situations because of COVID, or maybe completely separate situations in our lives that we simply did not foresee coming or foresee happening, all because life can be so uncertain. Life can be so unpredictable. And so how are we as Christians to live in these times? How are we to protect um, the perspective that we have on life? How are we to protect our minds, our thoughts, our attitudes? And what are we actually supposed to do practically? What are we supposed to do in these times? And what should be the governing motivation behind everything we say and do? Well, fortunately, we're not the only ones to live in unpredictable and uncertain times. The Apostle Peter wrote to a bunch of scattered Christians throughout Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. And these poor Christians were suffering greatly for their faith due to persecution, and no doubt had put them in very precarious and uncertain situations and times. So let's see how he encourages them, and then we will pull out some of the timeless universal truths and apply them to our particular situation. So I want you to read 1 Peter 4. Verses 7 to 11, if you have a device, 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11, we won't be handing out any Bibles at this stage, um, so follow along, or like I said, if you have a device. So the Apostle Peter writes to this scattered group of Christians, and he says this, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, 
Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion and, and uh, sorry, to, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So I want us to understand at least four things that we are to protect or that we are to guard when it comes to living in an unpredictable world or in uncertain times. So to live in an unpredictable world, this is where we're going this morning, we need to firstly guard our perspective, our perspective on life. Number two, our attitudes, and in other words, what are we actually to think and how to think. And, and then number three, our actions, what are we to do. And then lastly, our motivations. Don't worry, point number four is the conclusion you will still get out of here in time. So, to live in an unpredictable world, number one, we need to guard our perspective. And as Christians, we live with a very unique perspective when it comes to this world. And yes, other religions have, have other viewpoints and, and, and opinions on life after death and this world. But we as Christians believe that this world is temporary. This world will come to an end and will be replaced, as Revelation 21 says, by the new heavens and the new earth. And it's this new earth that is going to be our eternal home as believers. So this current world is temporary, and that is what Peter is saying. That is the perspective that we are to have. That's the perspective that we are to protect, that we are to guard. But because this current world is so ravished and, and affected by sin, it often has a direct impact on us and then can begin to erode our perspective, our eternal perspective. And if it erodes that perspective, it then begins to erode our hope. And so Peter writes to these scattered and battered Christians in Asia Minor and he reminds them and he reminds us of this perspective that, that we are to have. Look at verse seven. He says, the end of all things is at hand. In other words, this current unpredictable and fallen world is soon going to be over. Its time will be fulfilled soon. But how does Peter and a host of other biblical authors, how do they know this? Well, essentially, when Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, he ushered in the last days, these final days or the end times. And he told us that there would be signs that would tell us this and remind us of this fact. He said that there would be natural signs, like in Luke 21 verse 11, he speaks of earthquakes and famines and pestilences and other fearful events, and we can quite safely say pandemics as well. He said there would be sociological issues caused by our sinful nature and the devil himself. Have a look at this quickly, 2 Timothy 3 from verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. I mean, we could just stop right there, right? We are living in times of difficulty, therefore the end times. But he gets really specific. He says, For people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. In other words, a breakdown of the family unit results in a breakdown of society and culture. Ungrateful, unholy, in other words, the exact opposite of God. Heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, 
without self-control. They just simply live out their desires, whatever they want to do. Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They rather pursue other things than love God. And so as we progress in these last days, that is what is going to characterize society and culture more and more. And this is because there will also be spiritual deception. Jesus says in Mark 13, verse 22, that he speaks of false prophets who will arise throughout the ages, doing many signs and wonders and speaking incredible things to lead people astray. Today, there's less skepticism and more tolerance of all things spiritual and religious. Truth is no longer considered something absolute, but something more relativistic and pluralistic. And on and on these signs go. But as terrible as they may be, and as discouraging as they may be, or disheartening as they may be, they serve a very good point for us to keep in mind. They remind us of the imminent return of our Lord and Savior who will make all things new. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Do we eagerly await? Do we eagerly anticipate the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus? Wayne Grudem, who's a great scholar, gives a rather sobering perspective on this. He says this, the more Christians are caught up enjoying the good things of this life and the more they neglect genuine Christian fellowship and their personal relationship with Christ, he says, the less they will long for his return. On the other hand, many Christians who are experiencing suffering or persecution or who are more elderly and infirm and those whose daily walk with Christ is vital and deep, he says, will have a more intense longing for his return. To some extent then, the degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual condition of our own lives at the moment. He goes on and says, it also gives some measure of the degree to which we see the world as it really is, as God sees it. This is how God sees it. In bondage to sin and rebellion against God and in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. So like I said, a very sobering perspective. And so what keeps us from despondency, what keeps us from compromise and, and apathy in this world is this wonderful perspective, this wonderful knowledge that Jesus could return at any moment. So point number one, we need to guard our perspectives. Guard our perspective, guard our eternal perspective because that is what's gonna give us hope because of the imminent return of Jesus. So no matter how unpredictable things get, no matter how uncertain things get, especially in the coming weeks, we can hold on to this wonderful promise that this is not our permanent reality. Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna usher in our permanent eternal reality, a glorious eternal reality with him. That then leads us to the second thing we need to guard in this unpredictable world, and that is our attitude. So having an eternal perspective will certainly help with this, but Peter's gonna get a whole lot more specific in how we ought to think in this world. So point number two, we need to guard our attitudes. And by attitude, I'm really speaking about our mindset here. How are we actually to think? Because when things get crazy, when things get uncertain, when things get unsure, the first thing that is affected is our minds, it's our thoughts, right? 
All the questions begin stirring in our minds and all of these potential scenarios begin whirling around in our minds. Are we gonna go into another lockdown? You know, will the borders ever open again? Will COVID overtake the island? And, and on and on these thoughts might go. And so what we then begin to do is we begin to look for answers, to fill our minds with answers that will hopefully give us perspective and hopefully give us hope and so that's why we need to protect them. In fact, next week, when we jump back into Philippians, we'll talk exclusively about protecting our minds and what we fill them with. But what Peter is gonna do now, he's gonna show us that we need to protect them for a very good reason. So have a look at the whole of verse seven. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, in other words, because of that amazing news, because of that amazing hope that we have, he says, this is what we ought to do in the meantime. Be self-controlled and sober-minded, and here comes the reason why, for the sake of your prayers. So the state of our minds will affect our prayers, or we can put it more plainly, the state of our minds affects the most important relationship that we have in this volatile world, and that is with Jesus. The only stable thing in this world is Jesus, and therefore we need to protect that communion with him. And the way Peter says we are to do that is by being self-controlled, by being sober-minded. So what does he mean by this? Well, the context of the Christians he was writing to helps us understand this. Look at verse three of chapter four. It gives us a pretty good idea of the culture and the situation that they found themselves in. Verse three says, for the time that, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Look at this. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Rome in the first century were notorious for licentious living. But look at verse four. It says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Because it's not who we are. It's no longer who we are. It's not who we represent. But here's the result though, the consequence. And they malign you. In other words, they will persecute you. But, verse five, but they will give an account to him whose imminent return is soon. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So can you see their culture is one of intoxication. They're intoxicated with their passions, intoxicated with their desires and alcohol and sex and, and the worship of false idols. And therefore, this culture is a culture of no self-control. So nothing much has changed throughout the centuries, unfortunately. Therefore, to be self-controlled and to be sober-minded is to not be like that, is to not be intoxicated with the ways of this world, is not to be intoxicated with our fleshy and sensual desires. But we are to be intoxicated. Paul says it like this to the Ephesians, who are also living in a very debaucherous culture. Ephesians 5.18 says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but here we go, but be filled, be intoxicated, but be filled with the Spirit. We are to be under the influence, not of alcohol, but we are to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit, who along with his other fruit is producing in us self-control, and therefore is producing in us a godly, sober-mindedness. So we are to be filled with the Spirit and filling our minds with His inspired Word so that our minds are not only protected from this volatile world, this unpredictable world, but most importantly, as Peter says, for the sake of our prayers. 
Another scholar summed up the importance of guarding our minds for the sake of our prayers like this. He says, a confused mind, a self-centered mind, a mind knocked out of balance by worldly lusts and pursuits, a mind victimized by emotion or passion out of control, a mind that is ignorant of God's truth, a mind that is indifferent to God's purposes is a mind that cannot know the fullness of holy communion in prayer with God. Is a mind that cannot enjoy a sweet relationship with the creator of the universe. He says, and so your relationship to God in a very real sense, which is expressed in this matter of prayer, is determined by the attitudes that we bring, or the attitudes that we have. And our attitudes are the result of what we are allowing our minds to be filled with and influenced by. And so we can either be in one of two circles. We can be in a destructive circle where our minds are being influenced by the things of this world and therefore affecting our attitude and therefore affecting our prayer life. And when there's no prayer life, then our minds will continually be filled with the things of this world and on and on this destructive circle or spiral will go. Or we can be in a circle where our minds are being influenced by the Spirit and His inspired Word that then begin to produce sober-mindedness. Sober-mindedness on, do I get vaccinated? Don't I get vaccinated? Do I agree or disagree with these protocols? But you have a sober-mindedness toward them. It produces self-control and therefore a deep and sweet communion with our Heavenly Father. And then that deep uh, communion then circles back and continues to strengthen our minds, renew our minds and guard our minds. So sunrise, we need to guard our minds because our prayer life is our lifeline. Your prayer life is your lifeline. It's a way we bring our anxieties and our burdens before God. It's, it's a way we unload our minds and our hearts before the creator of the universe so that we can experience the sober-mindedness and, and be self-controlled. Our prayer life demonstrates who we are actually reliant on in this world. Like we said earlier, Jesus is the only consistent thing in this world. He is and will always be our rock, our fortress, our strong tower that we can run to for refuge. Prayer is also the means that we can repent of the things that are clouding our minds, repent of giving in to our fleshy and, and, and sensual desires, repent of looking to false idols for hope instead of to the one true God. So to live in an unpredictable and uncertain world, we need to firstly guard our eternal perspective for the sake of our hope, and then secondly, guard our attitude for the sake of our relationship with Jesus and now with a well-guarded inner life, that will then lead to a well-guarded outer life. So point number three, we must guard our actions. And so what actions are we to do? How are we to practically live in this world? How are we to, to act and, and to react to each other as believers, especially when there's hurt, especially when there's disagreements? How are we to act to those, towards those who are outside of the Christian faith? Despite restrictions and protocols, what are we to do as Christians in these uncertain times? Peter answers this for us. Look at verse eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
this, by the way, was supposed to be our volunteer appreciation service. And so I was actually going to use this text in verse 10 for that service, but we kind of put that on hold. So if you're a volunteer, this kind of was for you, is for you, but we'll come back to that. So the first outward thing we're to do, according to Peter, here, is, Peter is to love one another, and he says we're to do this above all else. Above everything else, love one another. But notice it comes after your relationship with God, after protecting your prayer life. So first comes our, our vertical relationship that then influences the very next thing that we are to do as Christians, and that is love one another. Apparently there are like over 50 one another's in the New Testament, all referring to how we are to be and how we are to act towards each other as believers. And we find three of them jam-packed into these verses, including verse 10, which we'll read in a second. So let's look at them briefly and then we'll finish off. As we saw earlier, one of the signs that we are living in the last days is that people become lovers of themselves and lovers of money and lovers of their own desires. And so the Christian mandate here to love one another is becoming increasingly counterintuitive, increasingly countercultural. But how incredibly important in a volatile world. Knowing that we can be affected by the things in this world or that we can suffer from the things in this world. Many of us have friends and family members who have passed away due to COVID, not just COVID, other diseases, and, and maybe accidents or, or acts of violence. Or you know, we go through pressure and anxiety at work or heartache because of a relationship, a relationship didn't work out. But how comforting for us, Sunrise, how comforting for us that we have a faith family around us to love us and to support us through it all. Notice how Peter tells us to love one another. He says, love one another earnestly. One Greek scholar explains it like this. He said, it means to be stretched, to be strained. It is, a, it is used of a runner who's running at maximum output with taut muscles straining and stretching to the limit. It's used in some extra-biblical literature of a horse straining its great muscles in running full speed. He says it means intense, strenuous, reaching as far as you can reach to the limits of your capacity. But why? Why this earnestness? Why such a, a graphic picture of straining and striving to love one another? Because, Peter says, it covers a multitude of sins. Now, to be honest with you, I always struggle with that verse because I, I was thinking, well, wait, didn't Jesus' death on the cross, which is the most loving act world history will ever know, didn't that cover all of our sin? And yes, it's true. On the cross, we are completely justified. He took all of our sin upon himself and gave us his righteousness. So we are justified before God, past, present, and future sins. And because of that, we are being sanctified. We are pro progressing more and more into his image and likeness. And because of that, one day we will be in glory with him when he returns for us. But it's precisely because his love forgives us our sins to such an extent that we can, to a lesser degree, do the same for each other. Because we have experienced forgiveness from God Almighty, we can then begin to do that to each other. Could say it like this, because he was stretched out on a cross for unworthy sinners like us, we can stretch out to each other and forgive each other and stand by each other and support each other and comfort each other. 
If you find yourself struggling to love someone so as to forgive their sin against you, or if you find yourself without the capacity to love those outside of your comfort zone, then just simply take some time and remind yourself of the earnest love of Jesus toward you. Paul said this in Romans 5.8 of this earnest love that God has for us. He says that God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not, not when I cleaned up my act first and then deserved his love. No, while I was a sinner and while I was sinning in his face, Jesus died for me and he died for you. So when you're running low on capacity and grace toward others, or you're feeling despondent in your love towards others, take some time out to fuel yourself on the earnest love of God toward you. Fuel yourself on the love of Jesus so as to stretch it out onto one another. This includes the next one another in a very practical sense of being hospitable. Now this must have been pretty stretching for them in the first century, way more than it is for us because back then if you were a traveler and you were traveling to another city and you arrived late at night and the local inn was closed, you relied on the hospitality of others to take you in and give you a place to rest. In fact, Christians um, would want to avoid the local inns because uh, they were nothing more than brothels and apparently very dangerous. But can you imagine, can you imagine getting this knock on your door at 12 o'clock at night and there's some stranger or some distant relative who's traveled many days to get to your particular city to do business and so you would have to get up and you'd you know, allow him to, to freshen up and you'd have to make him some dinner and you make a bed for him to rest his head. Why would we not be allowed just to grumble a little bit? Because the door let me put it this way, the, the, through the cross, through the cross of Christ, the door was open for us to come into the Father's house. You see, we were considered enemies of God, but now through Jesus on the cross, he's opened the door for us to come into the Father's house as his children, no longer strangers, no longer enemies. And through it all, Jesus never grumbled. In fact, Peter writes in chapter two of this letter that when he suffered for us, he never grumbled. He says, no deceit was found in his mouth. He didn't revile when he was reviled, but he entrusted himself to his father. You see, we were welcomed in by grace without grumbling so that we can welcome others in with the same grace without grumbling. The third one another action we are to guard or implement in an unpredictable and uncertain world is to serve each other with our gifts. Look at verse 10. It says, as each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. It gives us some examples. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Some scholars say that um, there's an inexhaustible list to these spiritual gifts, and what Peter does here, he just simply groups them into two groups, uh, a speaking, speaking gifts and practical serving gifts. So if you, you speak, like preaching, teaching, praying for one another, encouraging one another, uh, gifts of discernment, that, those kinds of things, and then, other, and then the other group is practical ways to love each other. So if you are a Christian, you have received a gift from God. What an amazing thought. 
As if it wasn't enough for God to save us, he then bestows on us, not some of us, each of us, a spiritual gift. And he says the purpose of this gift is to use it for our greater good, for the building up of the church. And what a time that is for us to be doing this. And so we are managers of this gift. That's what he means by stewards. He says we are to be good stewards, not lazy stewards, not unfaithful stewards, but good, faithful stewards meaning we've been given a responsibility to use this gift. And not only do we get various gifts in the body of Christ, but they also come with varying amounts of capacity. That's what Peter means by good stewards of God's varied grace. God gives according to his will and according to the place and the space where he's called. God will empower you with your gift wherever he has called you to be. And of course, there's a human responsibility side where we are to grow in these giftings and develop these giftings, but ultimately it is God who will empower us, God who will strengthen us. That's why he says if you're gonna serve, serve by the strength that God supplies. That's how we know our service to each other will be blessed and we know it will be effective. So just as I finish off, now more than ever sunrise is the time to serve each other to be hospitable to each other, to love each other. See, when things get unstable, when things get unpredictable, that's when anxiety levels and insecure levels begin to rise or, or for others of us, anger and frustration levels begin to rise and we might say things and do things that we will regret. So let's finish off by talking about guarding our motivations. Peter's gonna show us the motivation that we are to have behind everything that we do. It's the motivation that should govern everything we do. It should govern how we work, govern how we are to be with our friends, our family members, our children, not just here when we're with our faith family or not just when we're with our community group. It's also the motivation that should govern our attitudes towards these restrictions and these protocols and whoever, whatever else might happen in the, in the coming weeks. It's this motivation that sets us as Christians apart from the rest of the world. It's exclusively unique to us as believers. See, here we go, look at this. Peter says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that. In other words, this is the purpose and therefore if this is the purpose, this must be our ultimate motivation. He says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the motivation behind everything we do is the glorification of God, is the exaltation of God, is to make much of God in everything we do and say. But now in order for that to happen, God not only gives us spiritual gifts, but he also gives us the strength to implement them. Because how it's impossible for us to glorify an infinite God in our own strength. And so that means we have to be reliant on him. Here's a silly example. You know, imagine trying to glorify or make much of Leonardo, almost said DiCaprio, Leonardo da Vinci according to your own strength, according to your own ability. Maybe not so much impossible for my wife, but certainly for me. Imagine, okay, Jason, you have to paint a painting that's gonna glorify Leonardo da Vinci. It'd be impossible. I would need the same skill set as him in order to do that. But Peter tells us that God is to be glorified in absolutely everything that we do. And the good news is then, 
we now know that he gives us the strength, he gives us the grace to be able to do that. The question for us is, is that our motivation in everything we do? Is that the lens, his, him being glorified, him looking glorious through us, is that our motivation in everything that we do? Because if it is, this is what's gonna happen. That motivation will guard our eternal perspective which leads to hope in this uncertain time. That motivation will, will guard our attitudes and our minds which will deepen our relationship with God who is the only sure thing in this world. And that motivation to glorify him will guard our love and our service towards each other in a time when we desperately need each other. So, to live in this unpredictable world, sunrise, let's pursue the glory of God, not with everything we have, but with all of the strength and the grace that he gives us. And we will see that we can not only live in this world, but also thrive in these uncertain times. Amen.